0: Now remember uh, this Olivet discourse. Jesus is answering a question that we read back in verse three of chapter twenty-four, where Jesus is leaving the temple. His disciples know that he's frustrated with the religious leaders. They they try to, in a sense, distract him and say, "Oh, look at how beautiful the temple is." And Jesus, of course, says, "You know what? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. This beautiful temple you see is going to be destroyed." And they walk all the way to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples ask him this question, and we see it in verse 3, where they say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And if you remember, we talked about that this word for coming is this Greek word, parousia, and it has to do with the time when the king enters a country that he has authority over and shows himself. He reveals himself as king of that country. It's not when he takes authority, but when he demonstrates the authority he already has, that he's present to rule. That's the parousia. And so he's answering this question in, in this, these, really these two chapters, in chapter 24 and chapter 25. When's this going to happen? Okay, Jesus, if the temple's going to be destroyed, which is almost blasphemous in their mind, when is this going to happen? When are you going to show yourself as Messiah? as God's chosen king. And so that's what Jesus is answering. He's asking, okay, what's the signs of these things and when is the time going to be here? Now, we just read in this last section of chapter 24 where Jesus says, especially in verse 36, no one knows the day or the hour. We just read that. But then we read in last week specifically Joe did a great job, a very thorough job. It's probably probably have to go back and listen to it a couple times to pick up all that he talked about. But then we read last week that there's this reality that Jesus kind of lays out some signs and talks about a time that is unlike any other in history. And so you, you kind of can imagine as the disciples hear this that they're a little bit confused, that they might be hearing Jesus say these things and thinking, okay, um, so are we going to know the times or not know the times? And OK, is the world going to be completely chaotic, or is it going to be business as usual? What's, what's actually happening? And we can imagine they might be confused. And why do we imagine that? Because we're kind of confused. <laughs> we're kind of wondering, how does this stuff work? And part of the problem is is that we can be, just like the disciples were, we can be those who want to have all the answers. And forget why Jesus is telling us these things. Now, we're talking about today expecting the unexpected because Jesus is making it clear in this last section of 20, Matthew 24 that he's going to return at a time we don't expect. But he wants us to expect that. He wants us to be ready for that. So what does that look like? What does it mean for us to expect the unexpected? Well, there's going to be look at at least three things. If you, you should have a little A4 piece of paper near you it has the outline. It make, might make it easier for you to follow. But here's what we want to talk about. The first thing is it means that we need to understand the times. Jesus said in verse 36, But of that day and hour, no one knows, even, nor, not even the angels uh, uh, of heaven. In fact, some versions say, nor the Son, but my Father only. But, he says... As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So, Jesus is being really clear here. We can't know when this stuff's going to happen. Date setting is ridiculous. Being overly concerned with every little thing that seems to be fulfilled prophecy is unhelpful. We can't know when this is going to happen, but he is saying we can kind of have an idea of what is going to take place. We can know the signs of the times. We can know how these birth pangs are going to come to pass. We can know what's going to happen in these last days before Jesus returns. We can kind of get an idea about what these things are going to be. And it's interesting that Jesus uses this issue of Noah. He brings up the idea that as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, we know a couple things about Noah, don't we? We know from the New Testament even The scripture says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And this is important because it ties with this whole issue of end times, of last days. If you remember, it'll be on the screen in Acts chapter 1, that the apostles, they're with Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus right before he ascends to heaven. They're with Jesus and they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? And how did Jesus reply? He said, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, listen, there's a parallel between What was going on in Noah's day and what Noah's responsibility was and what goes on in our day and what our responsibility is. See, see, these guys wanted to know, okay, when's it going to happen? When is your kingdom going to come on this earth in its fullness? When are the Romans going to be defeated? When is Israel going to reign? When are you going to bodily be reigning here? And he says, you know what? The Father knows and it's none of your business. But here's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be my witnesses. You are meant to testify of me. Now, now, Peter says, of course, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Jesus told us, listen, that the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, when the Holy Spirit begins to indwell us as God's people, it's at the book of, that happened at the book of Acts, Pentecost, chapter 2. But when the Holy Spirit begins to dwell his people, indwell his people, the Holy Spirit will, will do these works. And one of the things he said he will do is he will convict the world, the Spirit will, through people, convict the world of sin and of judgment and of righteousness. And when he says of righteousness, Jesus says of righteousness because I go to my Father. In other words, listen, the Holy Spirit is going to, the work the Holy Spirit is going to do through us, and this is what we want to cooperate with him, with the Holy Spirit to do is He's going to testify to everyone that Jesus is the righteous one. He's the standard of our righteousness, and listen, he's how we are right with God. It's how God declares us righteousness, our righteous. God clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. He is our righteousness. Now, this is really important. Because we can get so sort of caught up in the details. I mean, we can make the mistake of ignoring the details, then we're kind of just saying, nobody really knows what Jesus is talking about, which doesn't really make sense, does it? Obviously, Jesus wants us to know these things. But the other thing we can do is get so caught up in the details, we forget that, that, that what God's left us to do is not figure out the details, but to be preachers of righteousness, to preach Jesus to people, to tell people Jesus is... Worthy to be trusted. Jesus is who you need. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is coming back to reign. That's our responsibility. So, okay, we can't know when he's coming back, but we can know what we need to do until he comes back. We need to tell people about him. This is kind of the point that I believe, one of the points Jesus is making. But also, when he says, for, for as the days of worse so come into the Son of Man, will be, he says in verse 38, for in in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. In other words, they were continuing to live everyday life. They were preoccupied with everyday life. But also, listen, it says, and they did not know that the flood came and took them all away, so also will be, they come into the Son of Man. Now, now, here's what we know from the book of Genesis about the time of Noah. Listen to this. This is what God says about the, the generation of Noah, the generation he judged with the flood. Listen. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all people on the earth had corrupted their ways It's kind of a damning indictment, isn't it? It's pretty serious when God says, I see everybody and they're all messed up. Everybody's unrighteous. Everybody rebels against me. Now, we need to be, make sure that we're being clear here. When, when Jesus talks about they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving to marriage, he's not saying those things by themselves are bad things. It's good for us to eat and drink, otherwise we would die, okay? It's even good for us to enjoy good things. It's good for us to enjoy good food. The Bible's really clear that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Being married and given and being given in marriage, these are good things. I was at a wedding yesterday, a beautiful wedding. Sam and Joe's wedding it was gorgeous. Beautiful, gospel centered wedding. Lovely time. It's a good thing. The problem was, in Noah's day, people were doing these good things without any regard for God at all. They wanted nothing to do with him in our life. Do you realize that is what sin is? Sin is living as if God does not exist. That's what sin is. Sin is basically saying, I'm living in independence from God. See, we, we think of sins as all the bad things that we do. Well, those things are sin as well because we're acting as if God hasn't given us a standard. But we often just act as if God isn't even there. We do what we want to do. We are independent. We've made ourselves. We determine our own standards. That's what we do. That's what sin is. That's what evil is in God's eyes. Because the scripture is clear. It's really clear. God's given us richly everything that we enjoy. Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from God. So so the point is this. These guys, listen, they're, they're... They're willfully ignoring God and his word. Noah is, as he's building the ark for how long? 120 years. He's preaching righteousness to him. He's saying there's a God in heaven who's made all of these good things, but God is going to judge us for our evil ways, and we need to turn back to him. This judgment's coming, and this ark is meant to protect anyone who will believe. And they're all like, dude, you're a crazy person. Good boat builder, but you're a crazy person. And so what are they doing? They're willfully ignoring God. They're willfully ignoring His words. They're preoccupied with everyday life. In fact, Peter kind of jumps on the same theme in his epistle using Noah and what Noah went through as an example. Listen to this. Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming He promised? ever since our ancestors died everything goes as it has since the beginning of creation but they but they deliberately forget that long ago God's words uh, by God's words the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water and by water and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Sobering words. But did you see what Peter's doing there? Peter's saying, look, that's what happened on Noah's day. They're like, oh, come on. Really? Judgment? Rain? We even had rain. You know, rain, floods. Really? A boat here? Really? Come on. You know, Noah, you're a hard worker, and, and you obviously have a nice family They're they're following after you, but come on. I mean, seriously? You really believe this stuff? I can imagine as each generation came up, younger people come, and, come up and say, Daddy, who's, who's that, that man over there building that, that big wooden thing? Oh, that's Noah. He's a bit cuckoo. Why is he building a boat right there in the middle of that? Well, you know. He says that, that God's going to judge everyone. God doesn't judge. God's only love. Oh, okay. Yeah, things have always been the way they are. Don't worry about it. Now, this is important because Jesus is talking about something that we need to understand. We need to understand that we are living in the time between his first coming and his second coming. And we talked about in the very first message, didn't we, about what we can expect during that time. But we also need to understand what we expect at the end of time. When, this, when Jesus comes back, what happens he comes back as a judge. And, and please make no mistake of this. this is, I'm not saying this to be harsh. I'm not saying this to be um, shocking or, or to scare people necessarily by itself. It's not really my, my main intent. But this is a reality that we need to be sober about. Jesus says when he comes back, he comes back as a judge. And we see Jesus when he's on the scene, right, when he comes his first time. Small children are drawn to him. He heals every sick person that he comes across with, pretty much. Um, He's gracious. He's kind. He has harsh words for religious hypocrites. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But but for the most part, he's a really attractive guy, but he makes it really clear, doesn't he? John makes it clear in the Revelation, doesn't he? When he comes back, he's got a tattoo down his leg and a sword coming out of his mouth. And he's here to judge. We, 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 We can't Ignore that. We can't just make Jesus out to what we are comfortable with. We have to take him as he's revealed himself to be. And it's meant to sober us. It's meant for us to think about what we're doing. Now, you can't stick your fingers up at a police officer and think that it's eventually not going to have a consequence. And they're just a human police officer. We can't thumb our nose at the creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, And think there aren't consequences. And that's what humanity does. That's what we do apart from the grace of God. We need to understand the times we live. We live in a time that's leading towards judgment as people are pushing God away. It's sobering, isn't it? It's hard to think about, isn't it? You might be visiting today going, man, I don't don't want to hear this. I want to hear something nice and uplifting. (laughs) I don't blame you. It's not easy to preach either. But it is what Jesus is teaching. It is what we need to understand. We need to understand the times we live in. We live in a time before judgment, which means this. Listen, we are, think of it this way. We are on the Titanic, and it's already hit the iceberg. It is sinking, and people are dying. And we can't sit on deck chairs sipping our drinks hoping the sun comes back out. We need to get the lifeboats out. We need to throw the lifesavers out to people. We need to endure the coldness of the water to help people get into the boat. That's what he calls us to do. We need to understand the times. Now, he says this to these guys, and then he goes on to say in verse 40, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, he says, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now, I want you to recognize something. Notice he says that these were taken. That these people involved in kind of everyday activities, you know, men plowing in the fields or, or you know, women grinding at the mill. These were normal everyday activities. They're, they're, they're about their business, right? But then they're taken. Now, some see this to believe, or some see this to be, that these are, the ones that are taken are those that are the elect, those that belong to God, those that have put their faith in, in God. And they're taken. They're caught up in the air. This is, some people see the rapture, Joe mentioned last week, happening at this point. But I, I want you to notice, I, I personally don't think that's what it is. I want you to notice back in verse 39 where it says, The language that Jesus uses, he says uh, that uh, these guys did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. I believe what he's talking about is not a taking away of the righteous, but a taking away of the lives of the wicked in judgment. Either way, here's what's really important to understand. Jesus is saying this. Listen, Jesus is saying, therefore, he says... Watch therefore, he says, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. He's, the, the point he's trying to make is he's the one doing the taking. It's the Lord. It's Jesus who's doing the taking. He's the judge. Listen, if we can stand before God the Father with a peace and with knowing that we're accepted by him, you know why? It's because Jesus has judged us. Or maybe it's better to say we've already been judged in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. When Christ died on the cross, the judgment that was meant for us, he took on himself. So that if we put our faith in him, we can know we're not under judgment, but we're under grace. It's an amazing thing. Either way, he's still the judge. When he comes back, though, he comes back to judge. And this is something we need to be, again, sober about, and we need to be blessed about. What what did Jesus say in John chapter 5? Jesus says this. He says, The Father has life in himself and has granted the same life-giving power to his son. He has given him authority to judge everyone because he is of the Son of Man. Guys, it's good news that Jesus is the judge. Do you remember when Jesus, there was the man who was paralyzed and his four friends came and they ripped up the roof and they lowered him down and then Jesus healed the man? You guys remember that? And the Pharisees were all scandalized by this because it was the Sabbath and healing's work. You shouldn't work on the Sabbath and they're all freaked out about it. But what did Jesus say to that person first It was even more scandalous? Your sins are forgiven. And they thought, wait a second. How, you're not God. How can you say this man's sins are forgiven? Who, who are you to do that? And that's why Jesus healed the man, to prove that he was God in the flesh, Right? What about when there's that woman caught in adultery and the men are all wanting to stone her? What does Jesus do? He was among sin, uh, who's without sin, cast the first stone. You guys remember? They all walk away. What ends up happening? He says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. When Jesus says, listen, your sins are forgiven, guess what they are? They're forgiven. When Jesus says, listen, when, when Jesus says, I, don't, I no longer condemn you, what does that mean? You're not condemned. The fact that Jesus is judged means when he says something about us, it's a done deal. This is what's good news. Jesus has, listen, the same life-giving power. That's how the New Living Translation says John chapter 5. He has the same life-giving power. He got that from his father. He has the authority to judge everyone because he's Son of Man. And this is so important because Jesus isn't just someone who wants to forgive. He does want to forgive, but he's the judge. He makes the decision. He looks at us and declares, innocent. We're guilty. Now let's be honest. We all know we're guilty, don't we? We all know we're guilty. So how can Jesus, if he's good, look at us who are guilty and say we're innocent? Because he is the one who took on our sin. He is the one who paid that price, absorbed the wrath of God on the cross, and rose from the dead to make it reality. He's the one who did that. So when Jesus looks at you and he says, you're forgiven, what are you? Forgiven. You're forgiven. What if someone says, no, you're not forgiven. I don't think you're repentant enough. You're not forgiven. What is, are, are, they, are they right? Or is Jesus right? <laughs> Come on. Do you see what I'm saying? This is good news, but you can't have it both ways. You can't say, Jesus has the authority to say you're forgiven, but he doesn't have the authority to say you're guilty. You can't have it both ways. He's either judge or he's not. And this is the thing he's wanting his disciples to understand. Listen, this brings us to the second thing. Not only do we need to understand the times, but we need to clarify our focus. We need to remember who does the taking away, both the taking away in judgment and the taking away of our sins. Who does that? Jesus does. He's the judge. We need to make sure our focus is on him. In fact, this is what he's trying to get the disciples to understand. In verse 43, he says, You know, know this, if the master of the house would have known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed the house to be broken in. Jesus is using an analogy. He's not saying he's a thief to steal something. He's saying like a thief, he comes when nobody's watching. Therefore, he says, listen, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, we're talking about clarifying our focus. The Scripture is clear. Our focus needs to be, as Christians, is on Jesus. Even when it comes to the coming of his kingdom, our focus is on the person of Jesus. Now, going back to Acts chapter 1, the disciples are told by Jesus, look, it's not for you to know the the day or hour, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. We just read that, right? But then what happens? Then what happens is Jesus ascends into heaven. And here these guys are going, whoa. Whoa. They watch him ascend in the clouds, and they're seeing him go up there, and they're thinking, whoa, and I can imagine them staring for a long time, (laughs) kind of thinking, what do we do now? Is he going to come right back? What's going to happen, you know? Forgetting he had just said you need to wait in Jerusalem, and then you're going to receive the Holy Spirit, you're going to have power to be witnesses, but they're sitting there up there, and what happens? These two men come clothed in white, angels probably, right? Right? They come in, and what do they say? Listen, verse 11 of, of Acts chapter 1. Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he'll return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. Did you hear that? How's he going to come back? The same way he went. Every eye is going to see him. Which is why Jesus says stuff like, hey, when they say, he's out in the desert in the secret place, go, ah, no, don't believe him. Because when Jesus comes back, you're going to know. Everyone's going to know. Everyone's going to know. This is where we have to keep our focus. Our focus is on Jesus. Now, this is really important because what motivates us to press on when things get tough? We're waiting for the Lord to come back. We know he's coming back. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're waiting for. We need to clarify our focus. Here's the last thing. We're almost done. We need to serve our master. Look at the analogy that Jesus gives, the parable he gives. He says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, verse 45? Whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. Who's like that, he says? Who's the one that's like that? I love the fact that he says this servant that he's calling faithful and wise. The word for wise there doesn't mean intelligent, it means sagacious or Kind of cautious, like you're thinking carefully about what you're doing. That's what it means. So, the, who's who's the faithful servant? He 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 continues to trust. Who's the sagacious or wise servant? He's cautious about what he's doing with his life, with his time, and his resources. Who's this person who's known as, who who's who, who's his master's made ruler, and he's giving them food in due season? Jesus is wanting the disciples to think. He's asking the question: Okay, who? Who's the stewards in the kingdom of God? Well, they are. And guess what? We are. And notice what he says about a good, a good, a faithful and wise servant, a good servant. He says that he gives them food in due season. Who does that? The Lord gives them food to give food to whom? Others. That's what stewards do. Stewards take the resources of their master not so they can just enjoy them for themselves, but so they can distribute them to the whole household. That's what stewards do. All right, That's what servants do. Now this is important. Okay, and We're talking about the needing to serve our master. This is how we are ready. This is how we are ready for the unexpected. We are looking to please Jesus by serving other people. That's how we do it. Not complicated, is it? Now we love to talk about love, don't we? And, and, and that's a good thing. Love is a great thing. But sometimes I think we talk about love so much we forget what love is. The Bible's really clear. God is love. That doesn't mean that love is God. It means God is love. God defines what love is. God in this, as a triune being, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect relationship defines this is what love is. Or God is relational or God is love. And what God has done is God, in his love, he so loved the world that he sent his own son. In other words, God the son took on flesh. God becomes man. Why? Because he so loved the world. And he shows love. He demonstrates perfect love. Perfect love for God, perfect love for others. The, the, the highlight of the demonstration of that love is in obedience to the Father, and out of love for us, he is crucified on a cross. And then he's resurrected. And then he sends the disciples out saying, go do what I've told you to do. He says, Jesus says, here's the chief commandment, right? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember how he said that? He said the second is like on the first. In other words, listen, here's how you show God you love him. You love other people. Here's why you love God in the first place. He first loved you. This is, how we, this is how we're ready for the unexpected. We walk in this kind of love. We receive the love that God has for us, and we demonstrate that love for other people. This is what he's talking about. Now, this is interesting because in a very serious thing, Jesus is saying, I want you, listen to be feeding who and when the master would. That's what a steward does. A steward says, okay, I don't have my plan for, for the household of my master. My master's given me his plan for his household, so I'm gonna feed these other servants when they're supposed to get fed and with what they're supposed to get fed. I know who I'm supposed to feed, and I know what I'm supposed to feed them. Now, Peter, when he writes his, his first epistle... The whole epistle is about suffering. It's all about how, as Jesus followers, we can expect to be pushed to the outside of society. We can expect to be marginalized. And how we are to act and love from those margins. That's what the whole book is about. And in the midst of that, Peter says this. He says, instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life, and if someone asks you about your hope, as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now, this is important. We're talking about a good, a good servant who gives food at, in due season, right? How, to whom should we give food to? Who should we feed the truth to? Well, according to 1 Peter, anyone who asks. Who's going to ask us? Those who see, we have hope. Why are we going to have hope? Because Christ is Lord of our life. Do you see how that works? This is really important. It's important because Jesus is wanting to answer the disciples' questions about, okay, Lord, when are you coming? How is this going to be? How does, how does this affect us? And he's saying, here's how it affects you. I want you to expect the unexpected. I want you to serve me. Here's how I want you to serve me. I want you To feed others. Here's Here's who you're going to feed. Those who see that you still have hope in me. You still trust my leading even when you suffer for it. They're the ones you're going to ask. You know what people don't need to be fed? Every detail of eschatology. You don't need to explain to people the order of what happens. I'm talking about unbelievers specifically. But what you do have to have is real hope. You do have to believe it's a good thing for Jesus to come back and reign. You have to believe that. You have to believe it so truly, so authentically that you're willing to suffer because of that reality. You have to believe it. And when you believe it that way, you know what happens? People say, man, how is it that your life isn't going so good, but you still seem to be okay with it? I mean, I I know these things are hard for you, but you still seem to, to be hopeful. Why is it that you're still hopeful? Well, because I know Who is in charge? He's my hope, and he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to sort this whole mess out. (laughs) Mm, Guys, can you see how the worse things get the more we need to have this kind of hope? Can you see how the worse things get? Why God would say, here's here, here, why Jesus would say, here's what being a good steward is. It's being ready to share this truth in those circumstances. Can you see why that's important? Guys, listen, we, we spend so much time as the church, especially the church in the West, we spend so much time trying to make our church services attractive. Great music, lighting, buildings, coffee. The coffee's of God, but the rest I'm not too sure. We try to do all these things, right? We try to do all these things. We need to make things attractive. You know what's really attractive to people out there? Not this. They can get this anywhere. What's attractive to those that are lost is when they see in us a hope that they don't have, they can't have. It's when they see people who really do believe. You really believe in Jesus. You don't just believe in Christian morality. You believe in this this man. Yeah, we do. We believe this man was God in the flesh. We believe this man's coming back soon. We believe he's worthy to be worshipped and followed and trusted. He's our hope. This is what people need to see. The worse things get, the more they need to see this. Can you see why Jesus is teaching us this? Why he's teaching his disciples this? So we're, we're meant to be pleasing him by serving others. Notice, listen, part of that also comes with us expecting him, wanting to, to, to please him by serving others, is us expecting him to reward us. Now, this is something sometimes Christians don't feel comfortable with. They think, well, if we're saved by grace, we shouldn't expect anything else. You know, we shouldn't expect rewards. But, but, you know, Jesus wants us to be motivated by rewards. He, he's the one who sets this up. Listen to this. This is how Paul... This is what Paul writes at the end of his life, right before he's going to be beheaded for his faith. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 4 8. He says, Now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Now, how can you eagerly look forward to his appearing if this is your best life now? Yes, that's a jab at the book. You know what we expect a reward? Because we've been faithful to God even when it hurts. We've loved people even when they've rejected us. We've served those that really want to be our enemies. We've sacrificed to benefit God's people. Why? Because we can't wait for Jesus to come back. We long for his kingdom to come now. We want to see him. We want to be with him. We want to talk about how good his reign is. This is what Jesus is pulling these guys to. He's saying, look, don't you realize there's a reward waiting for you? As you really think you're going to see Jesus face to face and go, eh? Get to heaven and go, this this is all there is? Do you really think it's going to be that way? No, there's a great reward, a crown of righteousness awaiting us. Then he says this even more sobering. Verse 48, I'm almost done. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming, notice, if he says where? In his heart. This has nothing to do with somebody having some sort of a differing view on eschatology. This has to do with somebody whose heart is beginning to drift away from Jesus, their Savior. He's talking about unbelief. See, we serve, we need to serve our Master, yes, by pleasing Him, by serving others, but also by guarding our hearts against unbelief. And you need to understand something. Listen, all of our issues always begin in our hearts. Always. As has been said many times, the heart of the matter It's always the matter of the heart. I'm going to give you several verses quickly. You can write these down. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Proverbs 7, 25, Do not let your heart turn towards her way, that's the adulteress, and stray into her paths. Proverbs 23, Do not let your heart envy sinners. But always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. Do you understand what the the author of Proverbs is saying? He's saying, listen, the thing you've got to deal with first and foremost is your heart. Where do your affections lie? What do you want most? This is a question we have to ask ourselves daily, isn't it? What do we, what's really important to us? the praise of men, the comfort of our own bodies, setting up our own little kingdom. What's really important to us? What's the affection of our heart? Now listen, this is not the author of of Proverbs talking about us somehow converting ourselves. In fact, he says later on, in uh, Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean without sin? No one can say that. We need God to convert us. We need God to change our hearts. But we also have a responsibility to guide our hearts back to Him. To direct our hearts towards Him. This is why the Scripture says, and also in Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 14, the backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. We think of that idea of backsliding, right? Someone who is a believer who starts to live in like they're not a believer, we think of that idea of backsliding as in the big ones, don't we? Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? used to be the president of CU, and now they're getting wasted every weekend. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? She acted like she was all you know, into Jesus, but she sleeps around all the time. Did you hear about so-and-so? He says he's a Christian. I know he fudged the numbers on his accounts so he could get the bonus. Oh, did you hear about so-and-so? They say they spend their weekends serving Jesus, but man, they never grade their papers in a fair way for their students. See, the thing is, we see backsliding as something that people Do the actions that flow from, but you know where it starts? In the heart. It's when our hearts say, you know what? God, you're on the list, but there's some other things more important. And so Jesus says, listen, this is really sobering words, verse 49. Because his heart's in this place, what happens? He begins to beat his fellow servants. Have you noticed that when you, uh, even before you start getting into the real nasty stuff, or even if you just start dabbling in some of the quote-unquote nasty stuff, that one of the first things you do is you complain about other believers? This is one of the ways you can see if your heart is beginning to slide back how critical are you of other believers. He says, and to eat and drink with the drunkards... Wait, John, you said earlier that eating and drinking was okay. It is, it is okay. It's great. It's great for us to celebrate. Jesus put a stamp of approval on parties, especially wedding parties. <laughs> but there's a difference between celebrating and serving pleasure. He says the master of that servant will come on that day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of, and he says he will cut him in two and appoint him as portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew records those phrases, weeping and gnashing of teeth, other places in the book of Matthew, and it's always in reference to hell. Let's not be self-deceived. We can't just give lip service to the lordship of Jesus. He's not deceived. We can't act like he is worthy of our lives that live like only I am worthy of my life. Let's not be deceived. You see, we have to guard our hearts against unbelief. And let me tell you, when Jesus says he's appointing these men with, uh, with the hypocrites, remember who Jesus was most harsh to, religious hypocrites. <clears throat> There is just as much unbelief in the church as there is out of the church. Because really, it's not just about unbelief, like I don't believe anything. Everyone believes something. It's misdirected belief. It's faith in something other than Jesus. It's faith in my works. It's faith in my religious uh, responsibilities. It's faith in my family connections. It's faith in my church connections. It's faith in my own service but it's not faith in Jesus. It's not saying, Lord, except for your grace, I would be lost. Lord, who else has the words of eternal life? Lord, you are worthy to be trusted. This is not about perfection at all. Serving our master, serving Jesus as master, it's not about our perfect service. It's about his perfect worthiness. It's about recognizing, Lord, you are worthy. You know what's so amazing about serving Jesus? He's such an easy master. Fail your boss more than once in a week, what happens? You get written up. Fail him after you've been written up, what happens? You get written up again. Fail again, what happens? You get fired. We fail Jesus every day. <laughs> several times every day. And when we turn back to him, what does he do? He says, I forgive you. He cleanses us from our unrighteousness. He picks us back up and he says, Let's walk again. See, the, the the issue is we don't want to humble ourselves that way. We want to go, no, 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 I understand theologically, I've been born again. I can't be un- unborn again. Everything's fine. I'm sorted. Oh no, no, I, I'm pretty I'm doing better than most Christians that I know, so I'm okay. As opposed to saying, Jesus, you're my master, and you've called me to follow after you, and I need you to show me how that works. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, and this is in the context of taking communion, remembering the Lord and his work. He says this if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Let's stop excusing ourselves. Let's just admit to God where we're at. Lord, my heart is backslidden. Change me. Lord, I'm living in a way that if you were to come back right now, I'd be ashamed. Change me. Lord, I want people to think that I serve you and I follow you. But the truth is, when no one's looking, I do what I want to do. Change me. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to to know something. He says, listen, he wants them to not be distracted by what you can't know. Don't worry about times and seasons. You can't know that. He wants them instead to know who they can know. They can know that he is their Savior and Lord. He is worthy to be followed. This is what we need to know. And Father, I pray that you would help us not dull the edge of the sword of your word, but that your Holy Spirit would cut open and expose us where we need to be exposed, and that, Lord, we would look right back to you, (coughs) to you, Lord Jesus, your cross, your resurrection, your ascension. You are the righteous one, and we can only be right with the Father through the righteousness that you give us by faith. Lord, forgive us for playing the hypocrite. Forgive us, Lord, for not being sober about that you're judge. God, you're so good. You love us so much. You're worthy of every bit of obedience. Lord, help us to obey you by doing the things that you say and help us to obey you by confessing and repenting when we don't do the things that you say. Jesus, we confess you as Lord and we trust for you to change us. Your, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to um, just keep an attitude of prayer just for the sake of also people's privacy, if you guys would just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to just give you a chance to respond to what you heard today. So when we read the verse about being backslidden in heart, with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wonder, anybody feel like that's me, man? I'm, I've been backslidden in heart. Raise your hand. Don't look up. Just raise your hand. Okay. Anybody else feels that way? Backslidden in heart. All right. You can put your hands down. And the things we talked about today, are any of you guys worried about Jesus coming back? Anybody here afraid of that, that scares you? You know, just be honest. Again, no one's looking around, but raise your hand if you're thinking, I'm scared of Jesus coming back. Amen. I know that feeling. Sometimes it's good for us just to acknowledge in front of even just one other person, this is where our hearts are at. So for you guys who just raised your hands, okay, I'm I'm talking specifically to you who raised your hands. You you feel like you've been backslidden in heart. You, You feel like you're a bit afraid if the Lord comes back. Let me ask you a serious question. Do you believe that when Christ died, he paid for all your sins, past, present, and future? If you raised your hand before, if you believe that, raise your hand again. You believe that? Do you believe Jesus is alive today, that he, like physically, that he came back from life? Raise your hand if you believed that. All right, let me encourage you guys who, who raised your hands about these things. Let me encourage you, okay? Live in line of that truth. The Bible says, he who hides a sin will not prosper, but he who forsakes, confesses and forsakes, will have what? Mercy. <laughs> Mercy. Do you know what the scripture says? The scripture says where sin abounds, grace does what? Much more abounds. Receive that mercy. Now some of you might be here and you might not be sure what you believe about this Jesus stuff. Can I just really encourage you? This this stuff might be really weird, like way out there for you right now. And I, I wouldn't blame you if you felt that way. But would you be willing to talk to somebody about this? come and talk to somebody about this. Ask the questions about the things we're talking about. But, but you don't want the first time that you meet Jesus to be on Judgment Day. He wants you to know him now. He wants you to be forgiven now. He wants to have a relationship with you now. Don't wait.